you to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. That's where we're going to begin in our study tonight. Uh, if, if you recall, we've studied what I would say, at least to me, is an exciting uh, series. Um, what you're going to find with me is that I tend to do a lot of series. It kind of makes scheduling a little bit easier, but it also, um, I think, especially with the series that we're going to be going through uh, a, a part of tonight, um, I think it's very appropriate to try and go through every bit of God's Word as much as possible. And so, uh, if you don't already know, we're going to be going through just a, a narrative series, going through the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We're still in Genesis, and so we still have quite a bit of ways to go. Uh, but we looked at, uh, initially, the importance of just the book of Genesis as a whole. It wasn't necessarily an overview of the story in Genesis, but we looked at its importance and why it matters so much um, that, that, we, that we take it for what God has, has given us and, and why uh, our interpretation of Genesis can be so vital and crucial when it comes to our interpretation of other portions of Scripture and how Jesus even um, is, is, um, is depicted from the beginning. Uh, beautiful applications to make there. Well, tonight we're just going to pick up a few chapters uh, after uh, the creation, just in Genesis chapter 12. We're going to be just looking at kind of a, a, a maybe a broad look at Abraham's life, looking at specifically the faith of Abraham. And that's uh, where I want to start by reading in Hebrews chapter 11 in verse 8. It, Hebrews chapter 11 is a passage that goes through really many examples of people who showed great faith. Examples that not only are, are, uh, are, not only are good examples, but examples that we are supposed to follow, that we're striving to imitate more and more. And then we get to uh, Abraham in verse 8, and it says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. And so, again, what I, that's just what I want to look at is the faith of Abraham and just a few applications that we are supposed to learn um, since he is such an, uh, his faith is an exemplary one, to, to say the least. His example is one of true faith. Now, you ask the question, or you might ask the question, what is true faith, at least displayed in Abraham? That's the question I want to try and answer tonight. It's certainly not an absence of obedience as some I would say false doctrine suggests, but on the other hand, it's not an absent-minded, uninvested compliance either. Rather, I think we find uh, much more dedication and devotion, especially in the example of Abraham. There's so many more examples that you could look at in Hebrews chapter 11. But again, as we uh, are just going through this narrative series, I want to take a, a look at just a few stories of Abraham, how he really did display this, what I would say, true faith. And so, first of all, what I want to look at is uh, the, the idea of seeking God. And I think that this is a part of what true faith is and what it's supposed to look like. Even within the context of Hebrews chapter 11, um, what you find are all throughout examples of faith, as we just said. But even in the context, you find that this idea of seeking God is a part of, that, uh, is, is a part of this life. Um, in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 11, it, it's just talked about uh, Abel and Enoch, and then it gets in verse 6, and it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And what I want to do is kind of just develop that thought from verse 6 as we go throughout the, the life of Abraham. 
uh, I will just say we're going to slow way down in Genesis chapter 22 next week. I want to have just a, a very textual lesson study on just that passage alone because I think there's a lot of lessons. And so I say all that to say it was kind of hard to pick and choose what information I thought was the most necessary for this lesson. So uh, we're, maybe this is like part one and, and when we get to Genesis 22 that will be part two. But uh, all, of, all of that just to say no matter what, even within the context of Hebrews chapter 11, you find this idea of seeking God, of one who's striving to come to him. Your translation may say, draw near to him. Um, and I think that's the idea, especially as you look at the example of Abraham. Again, in verse uh, 8 of Hebrews chapter 11, as we read just a moment ago, it says that he obeyed, by faith he obeyed, and he went out to a place he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. In verse 9, by faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now, going all the way back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, where Abraham's, uh, Abram's journey starts. In Genesis chapter 12, in verse 1, it's interesting how his, how his story begins, because it just there, there's, there's really no... There's really no slow part. It just gets right into the action. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the side of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was, in the, was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Now, there's actually a lot that goes on in those eight verses that we just read. First of all, the promises that God gives to Abraham pretty important details as you're going throughout the Bible story. As we're going to look at in just a moment, those details are not forgotten. In fact, they're just woven throughout the story, uh, and I think by God to try and get his people to remember, one, how they're supposed to act, and two, how God interacts with his, with his people. Um, but, but also, not only do you find the promises, as we read in the first few verses, but you do see how quickly Abraham uh, follows the Lord. As soon as he is called, he responds, and in a very favorable way, in a positive way. He just does what the, what the Lord says. And this is in, in spite of the fact that he already has much comfort, and he already has many blessings in the land that he's residing in. His family, uh, especially when you look at the, maybe the technology of the time, it seemed that they did have, um, it, there's, some suggest that they had a very comfortable lifestyle, especially for the time. And so Ab Abraham is leaving much as he is striving to seek the Lord, striving to obey the Lord. Now, I just wanted to go through all that just for one thing to say. It's interesting that you see that message also in the New Testament. You see it emphasized in the New Testament, in fact, that there are things that you have to leave. Well, going beyond that, not only does he obey uh, just about immediately as far as the, the text seems to indicate, but also another thing we learn 
um, is, is how far he goes in his obedience. Obedience, accepting God's instruction as the highest standard is revealed, I think, as a part of seeking God, at least in the life of Abraham. Over in Genesis chapter 17, kind of skipping a few chapters, Genesis 17, beginning in chapter 12, he, he begins his journey. He uh, gets into an altercation with those who had captured Lot and his, and his household. And so uh, that's even where you find in chapter 14 Melchizedek coming into the story. Uh, we don't have enough time, unfortunately, to go through some of that. But uh, chapter 15, God makes this covenant with Abram. In chapter 16, uh, it seems that Sarah and Abraham try to help God maybe with that promise that he said that, there would, that he would give them the uh, nations through his descendants. But finally, you get to chapter 17. And beginning in verse uh, 10 of Genesis chapter 17, it says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. After every male, you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised through your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, a servant who is born in your house or, is, or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall, be, shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant." Uh, but an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so very clearly you have this, uh, this instruction being given to Abraham. But then you skip down in chapter 17 all the way to verse 23. What does Abraham do? <laughs> Remember, he, he's at least 75 years old. And now God has given him what I would think is a pretty... Uh, uncomfortable, to say the very least, difficult commandment at 75. But Abraham doesn't seem to fuss, and Abraham doesn't seem to, again, hesitate. He does what God says. And even here, I do think that there is a, a good bit of faith shown. Um, I, I think the same thing when it comes to the Israelites, when they're about to finally, finally, in Joshua, cross the Jordan and get into um, and begin to invade and conquer the land of promise, the land of Canaan. And what does God tell them to do? While they're right on the enemy's doorstep, you need to be circumcised. It seemed that they had forgotten in that part of their history and they had kind of let that law go. But it was something, as you already read in chapter 17 of Genesis, that was important. This is one of the, the, the signs of the covenant between Abraham and his descendants. There was no distinction between who, uh, who was affiliated with Abraham that was supposed to be circumcised. Everyone in your household, and even those who are bought, even the servants. And so it's a pretty important sign to say the very least. But then... Uh, beginning in verse uh, 23, it says, Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all the servants who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day, as God had said to him. Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael his son. All the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Now there are a few words within that passage we just read that aren't, the, that aren't necessarily, you know, we don't get super excited about reading those out loud in public very often. But... As I was just saying a moment ago, I do think that there's a great deal of significance, importance within this. As I was just saying about the Israelites, they were on the enemy's doorstep. And what did they do? They obeyed God and they weakened themselves physically. They put themselves in a very 
I, I would say, vulnerable state. Again, on an enemy territory, in, a, in an enemy territory. And so that, I think this is a great sign of, of faith, not just from the Israelites, but also especially with Abraham. And again, he, unlike the Israelites, was so very willing and so very uh, urgent about doing the things of the Lord, really obeying the commandments God has given him. Whereas the descendants of Abraham, Israel, as you see throughout the wandering in the wilderness, they simply just continue to grumble and they continue to, to uh, struggle against the commandments of the Lord. Um, but going beyond that, well, I will just say very quickly, because we're going to focus more on this uh, in the next study next week, but in chapter 22 of Genesis, you find the very same thing, this idea of, of obeying when it's very, very difficult. Because what does God tell him to do? Remember that son of promise that I told you that you would that that these um, that my covenant would be uh, you know further fulfilled in him, put him to death. And Abram, Abraham being an old man, and Abraham finally having gotten that getting that son of promise, what does he do? Again, he doesn't fuss, and he does not slowly obey the Lord, but he does exactly what the Lord has told him to do. Uh, now, ultimately, Isaac is not sacrificed. The Lord provides the sacrifice. Uh, but again, we'll get more into that story as we get to next week. But all, all of that just to say, there, as you look, especially in Abraham's life, this idea of seeking the Lord uh, and obedience is tied together uh, absolutely. And you can even think of some things we mentioned earlier this morning about authority. Well, finally, with this point, I think seeking God is tied into... Um, also the covenant with Abraham, as we were just saying a moment ago, and there's just a couple passages. There are a few more that we could look at, but here are just a couple passages that I think are um, maybe even more so pointed uh, when it comes to this idea of seeking God and that being tied to this Abrahamic uh, covenant. Beginning in Isaiah chapter 51, we'll start in Isaiah chapter 51, and I highlighted a few parts that I think are um, the most pointed when it comes to this connection. But Isaiah 51, and remember, when the prophets come in Israel's history, it is when they are especially in a dire need for the word of God to have an effect in their lives, to have an impact in their lives, because they keep going further and further. In fact, when you look at uh, a timeline of the kings and the prophets of Israel and Judah, what you see is that the closer they get to the judgment, the more congregated and, uh, and the more uh, pervasive the prophets are within that time frame. Uh, which is interesting to say the least. But beginning in Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 1, it says, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. Now remember, uh, when they would think back to this covenant, and especially with reference to the fact that he was but one, Remember the promise that he gave, I will give you descendants. I will make, many, I will make a, a great nation out of your seed. Um, and yet, he was giving this promise well before Abraham would, would receive Isaac. But he says, then I blessed him and multiplied him. In verse 3, indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness. He will make like Eden and her desert, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and sound of a melody. Pay attention to me, O my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for a law will go forth from me, and I will set my justice for a light of the peoples. You can just tell where my mind is on as I read through that passage. Um, uh, so 
As, as we just read in Isaiah chapter 51, and one thing about Isaiah is he, he, his language is steeped in judgment, in the Lord's judgment. And because he's trying to bring the people back, even from the very beginning, it's so beautiful how through Isaiah, God just says, uh, I believe it's in verse 18, come, let us reason together. All the while, he's trying to bring them back. I like what Brother Marshall McDaniel has said before. Uh, I don't know if you, you know him, but what he has said about judgment is that judgment has never been God's intended final word, though it could be. Uh, and, and I really like uh, the way he put that. And I think that that's very accurate, that God does not want the final word to be judgment. He wants it to be mercy, and he wants it to be salvation. But that doesn't mean that he won't bring that judgment. So Isaiah is, is, is trying to preach to people to bring them back. And it seems, I think, to use uh, Abraham as that example, again, of those who pursue righteousness, those who seek the Lord. And how else do you get righteousness? But by seeking him and doing what he says. And even at the very end of the passage there, uh, again, it's not, it doesn't necessarily say seek the Lord, but you have these phrases that just lend itself to the idea, pay attention to me, give ear to me, listen to me. Come, seek, and you will find. You'll find the righteousness that you need. You will find the, the instruction that you need to fix this. Um, well, not only in Isaiah chapter 51, but also in Psalm 105. Psalm 105, beginning in verse 1. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. Now, let me just stop right there for a moment. Does that sound familiar? There are sometimes we sing those very words in, in one of our hymns. Now, look at some more of the context as, we, as you think about that song of praise. Verse 3, glory to his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonders which he has done, his marvels and the judgments uttered by his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant. O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Now, uh, before we get back to this idea of seeking the Lord, first, at the very end of that passage, I think one reason that, or one lesson that Israel and that even we uh, are supposed to get from uh, the, the covenant that God made, even particularly with Abraham, is the fact that God does remember. God does deliver. You go throughout the rest of this psalm. We're not going to read it all except for the last few verses there. But, but through the rest of this psalm, what he does is just describe everything that God has done. He doesn't just talk about the covenant with Abraham, but then he talks about the covenant, his oath to Isaac. He talks about Jacob, Israel, and how he has done all of these things to deliver them and redeem his people. And so one of the main things that I think, or maybe one of the reminders that this covenant is supposed to bring to the people of God is God delivers. When he makes a promise, you can bet that, that you can be confident that it'll be fulfilled and that we will be able to enjoy that promise that he gives us no matter how, how dark the circumstances look. But, but again, as we look at verses 3 and 4, coming back to this idea of seeking the Lord, I think one thing that the covenant is supposed to remind them of is, is maybe just a lesson in you need to seek like Abraham did, who did everything that God said even before the promises were realized. Remember, the, all three of those promises are made in Genesis chapter 12 at the beginning of his journey. And Abraham was 75. 75. And it would be years before he receives uh, Isaac. But he believes. 
And we're going to look at that even more in other passages. But, but finally, as you get to the end of the psalm, one thing that, as we've already been talking about within this psalm, in verses 42 through 45, Psalm 105, verse 42, beginning, it says, For he remembered his holy word with Abraham his servant. And he brought forth his people with joy, his chosen ones with a joyful shout. He gave them also the lands of the nations that they might take possession of the fruit of the people's labor, so that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Now, did God, does it say that God delivers them? Does it even imply that God delivers his people and, and really does fulfill his promises so that they can just be free from oppression and so that they can be comfortable and enjoy a bunch of blessings? Well, not necessarily. The main purpose, as you see in verse 45, is so that they may keep his statutes and observe the laws. Essentially, what is he saying? But to seek the Lord continually, even further, just like Abraham did. And so he didn't just give them this land. He didn't deliver them to the promised land to be free from oppression, but ultimately to seek his will and to continue their servitude to the Lord as, as his people and him as their God. Well, uh, that's the case that I wanted to make about that idea of, of, I think, seeking the Lord being a, a big part of faith, as we see in the example of Abraham. But the second thing that I wanted to look at was really, even more so, what does, trying to answer that question again, what does true faith look like? And maybe kind of, um, hopefully dismantling some bad ideas or bad misconceptions that I think have come from the religious world, especially when it comes to the word faith or belief. Um, particularly as you look at a passage in Genesis chapter 15. Now, Genesis 15 is when Abraham and, and God make that, that covenant is kind of affirmed in a very um, real sense. And that sacrifice is laid and the Lord descends upon the mountain and it, it, it is a beautiful and terrifying picture all at once. But in Genesis chapter 15, in that same chapter, in verse 6, you see this phrase used several times in the New Testament. It, the, the, the phrase given for it to Abraham, then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. The Lord reckoned it to Abraham as righteousness. Now, there are, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, three direct references to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 in the New Testament. I just want to go through those, uh, you know, not in great detail, but, but, um, but still looking at these uh, passages with some of the context. So beginning in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians is, is um, I, I think, a pretty interesting study because he uses, Paul uses Abraham and he even uses Sarah. He even uses Hagar as a means to, to uh, establish certain doctrine when it comes to the law of Christ. Um, and you see that especially in chapters 3 and 4. And a little bit into chapter 5, uh, making, uh, just kind of concluding that case. But in, in chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, this is where it references Genesis 15. And it says, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure, or in other words, know that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Now first of all, isn't it so exciting that even that you make this connection here that Paul makes the connection for us that this that the gospel was being preached even in Genesis, even in Genesis uh, in Abraham's life. I think that's pretty beautiful. That through that promise, the covenant that God made with Abraham what that was pointing to was right now. 
What that was pointing to was the fulfillment of Christ's sacrifice and the very means that we can have the, uh, this, this bond, this familial bond in him, with not just, not just with, with Israel, uh, or physical Israel, but with Israel, uh, Jews and Gentiles alike. And anybody, if they have this kind of faith, can enter into that kingdom, can enter into this uh, similar kind of co- covenant. Now, as, as we look at uh, this passage in Galatians chapter 3, as you see on the screen, what I think that this teaches us about faith is that it is, for one thing, about trusting God. It's not just a mere belief that God exists, but it is believing in him. And there is a difference. So when he speaks of those of faith in, in verse 8, he means faith those with faith like Abraham's. That's what makes them sons of Abraham, heirs of the promise. Now, what is the difference between belief, uh, uh, belief and believing in something? Well, people say all the time, well, I believe that God exists. Well, that's, yes, you believe that, that, that there is a God and he exists. But there's a difference between believing that he exists and believing in him. And what I mean by that is trusting in him. When, when you look at, um, you know, there, there are, there, especially, you, you see this in sports movies a lot. They'll, they'll be talking about, you know, a certain individual that kind of rises above the rest of the team. And, and he kind of is a leader to some, you know, a reluctant leader to some degree. And, and you know, the coaches are talking about the decision that they're going to make. And they say, well, I believe in him. Well, when they say that, they're not saying that he exists. Because if that was the case, good job. <laughs> you, Good, good observation skills. What they are saying is, I, I've put, I have trust that he can accomplish this goal. I trust that he can fulfill the promises that he is making. And in the same way, to a much larger degree, that's what we mean when we're talking about the faith of Abraham here. It's not just a mere ascent of facts. It is saying, I believe in God. And everything he says, that's what's most important to me. And I hold firm in that because I hold that over all other things. Now, what is a, I think a good example of this is in Romans chapter 4, in verses, beginning in verse 19 through verse 22. And we're going to look at Romans chapter 4 in just a moment uh, more specifically because that's one of the um, d- direct references to Genesis chapter 15. But Romans chapter 4 in verse 19 it says, without becoming weak, in faith he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, what is it saying that Abraham was like, ah, may, maybe... I, I, I don't think God meant what he said. I don't, you know, I, I don't think that this is actually something that God is going to do for me. I don't think that this is, Ab- that this is speaking about Abraham you know, believing whether or not God was you know, telling the truth or not. I think that this has to do with something that we all relate to very much, doubts that sometimes rise in our own lives. God has made a promise, especially in Romans chapter Eight, it talks about how there are no afflictions, there are no persecutions. There is nothing that will outweigh the glory that is to be revealed in us in Christ. Ultimately, in eternity. Now we know that promise. We understand that that is that that God is going to deliver on that. But aren't there some times when you look at the world and you look at how 
how much persecution maybe has risen in your own life, or maybe just, just simple afflictions that never stop and just continue to just, just continue to keep punching. And it's, it's not, and it's not like we look at these, these promises and we say, well, I don't, I don't really think that God meant. No, it's sometimes how is God going to bring this about? How could he maybe? And we sometimes begin to doubt because maybe the deadness of our own bodies, maybe the, the weariness of our own bodies. And I think that's a very relatable uh, symptom of, of, of unbelief. Not just, well, I don't believe that God exists anymore. No, it's a, it's a confidence in uh, his promises and a, conf- and a confidence in his word. Well, moving on to Romans chapter 4 more uh, specifically. Romans chapter 4, there are a couple times where it actually references Genesis 15. But in Romans chapter 4, another thing that you find about faith is that uh, it is also, it, not only is it about trusting God, but it is about taking, I would say, God's standards over all others. God's standard over all others. Making sure that we put in, give our uh, allegiance to him over everything else. In Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not, or this is still Galatians, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. Now, there are a few different people. There's a couple people that Paul goes through in Romans chapter 4 specifically. He, talks, he starts with Abraham, as we just read. He goes on to David even, but then he comes back to Abraham. Now, I will just say that I think a part of the reason that there is some confusion on what the text, what Paul is saying here, is because, first of all, people just do not have the context of, of the, the current affairs between Jews and Gentiles. And also, they just don't have the context of Romans and predominantly who Paul is speaking to, the audience of Romans. Uh, and I will just say, I, I actually got, I had the chance to listen to a couple of um, uh, Brother Josh's McKibben's lessons on Romans. And so we're not going to get into a, a super deep study in, in it tonight. It, you can't justify, uh, you know, 10 minutes on, on just Romans 4. Uh, or you can't justify giving Romans 4 only 10 minutes. So because there are some, there are some things that, that Paul says that can be somewhat confusing. Um, but I'm not, I just say all that say, I'm not going to rehash everything that Josh said. But I do believe that one thing about Romans chapter 4 is, is, again, the context. And who is he specifically talking to when he talks about circumcision? Well, he's not necessarily talking to the Gentiles because they are what was called the uncircumcised or the uncircumcision at times throughout the New Testament. And he specifically brings up circumcision over and over again in this chapter. And I think for a purpose. And that purpose, I believe, is... Because the Jews had not just taken God's word at, at face value. They, didn't, they, they had read everything in the epistles and they heard what the gospel was. That you need to believe, that you need to repent, confess the Lord, confess his name. You need to be baptized into his death. And they accepted all of that. But then... They added things into the gospel. And this is one reason that, that some of the apostles, especially Paul, talk so much about the need to make sure we don't add anything to the gospel, which is another gospel. But they were saying you need to do all these things, be baptized, and then also be circumcised. If you're not circumcised, well, that just that kills the whole thing. And what, as we know, the apostles say over and over again, it, 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 so you, circumcision, that, you're, you've missed the point. 
You missed the point entirely, especially what circumcision was supposed to be in the Old Testament. And even as you look throughout the prophets and you find uh, God talking to his people about that act, what he says over and over again is you did not get it. You thought it was only skin deep. And while, you know, physically, you know, to a degree, it, it is very physical. It does have to do with the flesh. But it was supposed to go much deeper. And it was supposed to be a circumcision of the heart. But they never got it. And because of that, they continue to be stiff-necked and they continue to rebel against God. But going down to verse 9, as he talks about circumcision, he says, Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? Talking about forgiveness and, and uh, justification from Christ. For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And the, the case he's making is in, in terms of the timeline. So you have Genesis chapter 15, the, the text before you. That was the covenant that was given to Abraham. Circumcision came in Genesis chapter 17, two chapters after. So he's kind of talking about the timeline here. In verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Now, when he says following in the same steps, what was the main difference between the Jews at this time and Abraham throughout his life. Now, as, before I get into any of this, I'm not, no one would say that Abraham was perfect, at least no one here. Maybe there would be some Jews that would say that, but no one here would say that Abraham is perfect. We understand that he, had some, that he made some mistakes. But overall, like David, a man who, makes, who made some grave mistakes, he is still uh, depicted and described by the word of God as a man after God's own heart as an example of faith. And so what was the main difference between the Jews at this day in the first century and Abraham? The main difference was Abraham, he just listened to God. Whatever he said, he didn't hesitate. He wasn't reluctant. He did what God said, even when it was very difficult. And here you have in the first century Jews, sons fleshly of Abraham, who, who are saying, who've been given the oracles of God, and God is telling them exactly what they need to do. But here they are bringing something in because they can't let it go. And so the difference is... Here are these Jews, or here is Abraham who trusts the lawgiver and who goes to the lawgiver first. And here are the Jews who never did in the first place. Because had they done that from the beginning, they would have understood that it was supposed to go deeper than just the skin. It was supposed to be a circumcision of the heart. And it was supposed to be a, a sincere, true allegiance, obedience to God. Abraham would never, would never be... be he would never be burdened down by a frivolous argument or a frivolous conversation about, well, what, 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 did, what did God say? No, what does God say now? What did God tell you to do? That's the point. And what has God told us to do today? That's the point. So if you want to have faith like Abraham, you need to have obedience like Abraham. And not, and not quibble about maybe small things, but you have to fully invest in his word. Finally, in James chapter 2, all of this maybe can be summed up in just doing what God says. It, it, again, it can't be just emotionless, emotionless, uninvested compliance like we were talking about earlier. It needs to be a balance of trusting in the Lord, having, a, a, having that allegiance to him, and also doing everything that God says. Over in James chapter 2, very quickly, beginning in verse 16. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. It reads... 
uh, or rather beginning in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, uh, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, first of all, remember that story when, when Abraham was told, was commanded to sacrifice Isaac, the, his son, his begotten son, his only begotten son. That is in Genesis chapter 22. But Paul just a moment ago in Romans chapter 4 was talking about uh, you know, Genesis chapter 17 and how he was, just, and how he was uh, uh, credited as righteous by God before the circumcision. But then you come to James chapter 2 and here James is saying, well, he was justified. here it was fulfilled in Genesis chapter 22. Well, what, which is it? Well, first of all, if we try to take these two passages and make them argue with one another, make them contend with one another, guess what? We have completely misunderstood because all of God's word is, is perfectly balanced and connected. And I think that balances in everything that we've just said and what I, what I was saying right before we read James chapter 2. There needs to be this, this acknowledgement that it is not just, not just any standard that we want. Not, you know, if, if we like certain parts of the law, we can bring that in. No, it is I love the Lord and I will listen to him. And whatever he says, that's what I will do. And if he doesn't say that, I'm not even going to worry about that. Now, obviously, as you, as you think about that kind of faith, works are obviously a part of that. And as you see in James chapter 2, if, if you don't have those, those correlating actions, not just any actions, but the actions that God has commanded, that is the balance that's needed. And so these aren't just, these, all of these passages, they're not, they're not contending with one another. They're just helping us understand the faith that Abraham had and helping us understand what kind of faith that is that which saves today. And so finally, very quickly, not only is it a seeking of God, a continual seeking of God, a trusting devotion, but it is also something that involves a confident hope. In Hebrews chapter 11, very quickly, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, the New American Standard says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, we look at that and we read from that frequently. And what we are, we're, we're supposed to take lots of things from that. In fact, we, I think uh, there's a reason that he starts this way before he goes into all of these different examples to describe something. And what I want to do is flesh this out uh, very briefly as we look at Hebrews chapter 11. Um, but, but Abraham, when you look at his example... He was someone who, as we already read in Romans 4, he, he wasn't someone that wavered in unbelief, at least predominantly. It wasn't a big part of his life to, to, to start doubting that God could actually fulfill his promises. No, rather what you have is Abraham being strong, though his body was basically dead 
and the deadness of Sarah's womb, you know, adding on to that, even with all of those things working against him, he had a confident, he had an assurance in the promises that God had given him. I like the way the New English translation renders this verse. I think it helps us understand a little bit better what this looks like. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. And I do think that that's a helpful, what, uh, helpful translation. Because there are promises that God has made that we still do not see. Especially the promise of heaven, right? There is, there is a promise that we will one day be able to be in God's presence and be able to sing praises to him forever and ever for eternity. Where A day where there will be no more night, a day there, where there will be no more tears, a day where, where no more sin can invade and, and, and cause damage. That is a beautiful promise. That is a very weighty promise. We don't see. We, we, it's not like we can just look over you know, the mountaintop and see, oh, there it is, right over there. No, it's something that we can't see. But it's something that we do, that we are assured of. And not just because we walk by blind faith. That's not what faith is. But rather because we, we have uh, the conviction of things not seen. Over in Romans chapter 4. What does this kind of assurance look like? In Romans chapter 4, as we were mentioning uh, not too long ago, in verse 16, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, A father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead, and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Now, I love the way that, that Paul puts this. This is not language that is just new to the New Testament. It, it, it's, actually, uh, it, it's actually used throughout all of the Bible. The idea that, that when God speaks, when God makes promises, it's as good as done. Yes, we, we don't see it. Abraham, he didn't see it in Genesis chapter 12. He had to go through a long, arduous journey. But what do we still find? If God said, it's there. I, and I don't have to worry about that just because I don't see it. And it's because he was talking to the creator, the almighty. And I think that we can have that same level of assurance today over in Hebrews chapter 11, kind of getting into uh, some of the lesson for next week. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So even when Abraham was being tested, this would have been very difficult, obviously. But when he was being tested in this way, even, even had Isaac uh, physically been killed and, and you know, the, the dagger had fallen, he didn't have to worry because he knew. Now, it would have been difficult still. But the reason he didn't waver in unbelief, in unfaithfulness, in the doubts, is because he knew who was giving him this commandment. He knew who was giving him this instruction. And it was the one who can bring, them back for, who can bring the dead back to life. And if God said, so if God said that this promise was going to come through, or, or was going to come through Isaac, the son of promise, even if he dies, I know that God will still fulfill it. Isn't that a beautiful kind of faith? And he had far less um, 
Well, he had direct revelation, obviously, from God. But look at how much more revelation we have. And not just bits and pieces of the Christ that would come, but the full story. And yet, we struggle to have that same level of assurance. I think that we need to, we need to look at the example of Abraham. Abraham teaches us that, that, that faith is not just some ridiculous, as we were saying, blind walk a moment ago. Faith is, though something is not yet seen, if God promises it, it's as good as done. And when God says, I, I, I assure you, especially in Genesis 15, it's so beautiful that, that because there's nothing greater than himself, what does he make a promise about? What, what, how does he make a covenant? He, he promises by himself. He makes a vow with his own name. And we can be sure that that's going to be done. Well, why did Abraham do all of this? Well, honestly, when you think about the, the difficulty of that journey, what was his payoff? Yes, he prospered a bit. Yes, he gained some land and he even grew in family. But honestly, he had some of that already. And he could have made, you know, uh, uh, he could have grew in family not through Sarah. He did kind of with Hagar to a degree. And so he already had some of those things. Did Abraham, did, did he just go through this very difficult journey simply to get more of that stuff? Why would it be worth going on a long and difficult journey and in so doing, leaving behind all the family that he had and all the comfort and luxuries that he had in, in that land? Well, obviously, as you already know, because you've read the story, the same story I have read, Abraham didn't do it for the stuff. And he didn't do it for comfort. Rather, as you see in Hebrews chapter 11, as we already read in verses 8 through 10, especially in verse 10. Actually, I do just want to read that very quickly. Hebrews 11 and verse 10 again. What does it say? But that for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. What was he seeking? Not just some random land but the land that God was calling him to, God's city. That's why Abraham did those things. You skip down to verse 13, and it goes even further. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And so you, I think about that, and I think about especially Moses. Moses was a wonderful servant and a wonderful example of that kind of faithfulness that we need to strive for. Yet even Moses, he was not, enter, he was not allowed to enter the promised land. He was not allowed to enter into Canaan. But do you think that when Moses, when he went up on the mount to, to breathe his last, do you think that after Moses closed his eyes and opened them back up again after death, do you think that he was disappointed? That he didn't get to see, you know, Canaan, the promised land of Canaan? No, he was in the very land that Canaan was just a shadow of. And he was finally where God, the, the city that God was preparing for him all along. He was, he was able to uh, uh, enjoy at least that. And there are some interesting things to say about that as, as we go forward in our study. But going back to Abraham in the same way, I, you look at his faith and you look at his example, he's not a man who, who would be disappointed in being in the city that God called him to. 
because that is the architect and that is the leader, that is the king that he wanted to serve. He desired to be with that king. Now, whoever you are, maybe you're a Christian, do you remember that calling that God had for you when you became one, when you were converted? Do you remember the authority that you were supposed to follow? Maybe you have not been walking in a manner worthy of that calling, as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4. There's help for you. You can go to the scriptures. You can make your life right. Just in your pew tonight, we have an advocate in heaven. You can use the help of the brethren here. Let us help you. If you are not a Christian, understand that God's calling is not for you to accumulate stuff and comfort in this life, much like it wasn't that for Abraham, but that you might receive a crown of righteousness and be with him for an eternity. And what he promises is that no matter how hard or heartbreaking the journey to get, to get there, and it can be very heartbreaking, it will be worth it, as we see in Romans chapter 8. Would you like to respond to that call this evening? If you are subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.